Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, thanks for joining me for this week's episode. Today we are talking about how to use mindfulness to treat or alleviate chronic pain. Our expert guest this week is Dr. Ronald Siegel. He's an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, where he has taught for over 35 years. He's a longtime student of mindfulness meditation and serves on the board of directors and faculty of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. He teaches internationally about the application of mindfulness practice in psychotherapy and maintains a private clinical practice in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Dr. Siegel is co-editor of the critically acclaimed text, Mindfulness and Psychotherapy, author of a comprehensive guide for general audiences called The Mindfulness Solution, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems, co-editor of Wisdom and Compassion in Psychotherapy, co-author of the professional guide, Sitting Together, Essential Skills for Mindfulness-Based Psychotherapy, and co-author of the self-treatment guide called BackSense, which integrates Western and Eastern approaches for the treatment of chronic low back pain. Dr. Siegel is also co-director of the annual Harvard Medical School Conference on Meditation and Psychotherapy. On today's episode, we discuss how mindfulness helps chronic pain, Dr. Siegel's own personal journey of finding mindfulness as well as overcoming chronic low back pain, and how mindfulness fits into a clinical practice, whether you are a mental health professional or a physical medicine professional. Dr. Siegel also created a free download to accompany this podcast called How Mindfulness Works, Avoiding Avoidance. This download goes over how mindfulness helps with anxiety, how mindfulness helps with chronic pain, how mindfulness helps with depression, as well as how mindfulness is the antidote to avoidance. To access this free gift, all you have to do is text the word 144DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. That's 144DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. You can do that right on your smartphone. Or if you're in front of a computer, you can open up a a browser and type in the URL www.integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 144 download. I'll say that one more time. www.integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 144 download. Of course, you can find everything on the show notes at the com forward slash podcasts. I know you're really going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. We go through a ton of information on mindfulness and how mindfulness works to alleviate chronic pain and the suffering that's associated with it. Dr. Siegel is, he, he's really a master at mindfulness and psychotherapy. I learned so much from him on this podcast, so I recommend that you follow his work and take notes as you follow along with today's episode. Okay, let's begin and let's meet Dr. Siegel. Hi, Ron. Thanks for joining me for the Healing Pain Podcast this week. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I was excited when you decided to join and talk about mindfulness specifically for chronic pain. It's a topic we've talked about on this podcast before, but not one that we've really delved into with substantial evidence as well as both a psychotherapy perspective as well as more of a contemplative perspective. So we have a lot to talk about today. But tell us, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, over 35 years. You've written five books on mindfulness, both for people um, who are interested in practicing mindfulness as well as practitioners. 
integrating mindfulness into their practice. Tell me how you first got started in mindfulness. The way I first got started in mindfulness practice, there's the old story and then there's the newer story. And I'll share with you the newer story, which I'm only sharing because times have changed somewhat culturally. I actually got involved with them as a kid, experimenting with uh, psychedelic drugs, encountering certain states of mind, particularly transpersonal states, states of openness, states of access to unconscious material that were fascinating to me and seemed very, very important. At the time, as a kid, I thought, who has a map for this? Who understands these? Who's explored and written about these? And it turned out that it was folks with deep meditative practices and wisdom traditions and contemplative practices that knew something about these transpersonal states, knew something about their contours and how one might live a life that incorporates them, or at least that is aligned with some of the insights that come from them. The reason why I'm telling that story instead of, well, it was just in the zeitgeist at the time, which it was when I was growing up, because I grew up in the countercultural era, is because now the use of these uh, psychedelic substances is now in phase two and phase three FDA-approved clinical trials at major medical centers throughout the U.S. and in many, many studies in Europe. And we're finding that they're very, very useful for treating everything from trauma and intractable depression to things like end-of-life issues. So now that it's become a little bit more mainstream to talk about these effect of these substances on consciousness, you can know the true story. (laughs) Well, we appreciate truth on this podcast. And I'm sure that story was harder to tell maybe in the 80s when it wasn't as widely accepted. But as you mentioned, there's more and more research on controlled psychedelics, let's call them, versus people just experimenting with street drugs on treating different types of psychopathology. So I appreciate you bringing it to the forefront. It's not something we've talked about on this podcast, but I'm curious to know, did you find that mindfulness enhanced those types of experiences or how did you use mindfulness as part of that? Well, it was more that I discovered certain states of awareness and certain capacities to access emotion using the substances and then thought, well, okay, I'm not going to keep, you don't have good executive functioning when involved in these substances. You One also needs to be able to go to graduate school and know your zip code. So what are alternate means of pursuing some of these insights that don't impair executive functioning? And it turns out that mindfulness practice is one such means. In fact, that was largely its role. Traditionally, its role was not things like chronic pain treatment. Its role traditionally was to really examine how we construct our sense of self and how by seeing clearly how we construct our sense of self, We can identify the patterns that create psychological suffering across the board, emotional suffering as well as physical suffering, and seeing those mechanisms, how might we free ourselves from them? Mm. The sense of self is interesting. We've talked about it a little bit on this podcast, more within the context of ACT, because ACT talks about self as context or self as process. They have a couple different terms in ACT. Can you talk to us a little bit about how mindfulness can be used as a tool to increase our awareness? Well, mindfulness is, so uh, even though probably most of your listeners are somewhat familiar with it, a lot of people have a little bit of confusion about what we mean when we talk about mindfulness. And as I'm using it here, talking about any awareness of present experience with loving acceptance. So it means being alert, being in the present moment, and having this open attitude of loving acceptance toward whatever is is occurring right now. As it turns out, most of what we see when we start doing mindfulness practices, which are activities such as 
following the breath or walking and, and noticing the sensation of the feet touching the ground. When we do these practices that involve stepping out of the thought stream and coming back to moment-to-moment sensory experience, one of the things that happens is we develop metacognitive awareness. We develop the ability to see thoughts as thoughts rather than as realities that we identify with, a principle found, for example, in uh, most ACT approaches to treatment. We also start to notice certain phenomena, such as every time I resist some kind of experience, whether it be a sensation of pain, thought, an image, a memory, the very act of constricting and resisting that experience actually amplifies it and actually turns it from being a transient event that arises and passes to being some kind of event that the organism becomes stuck in, where we get caught in some kind of recursive pattern in which we're, we're resisting it so much, the very resistance fuels it, and then we resist more and we, just, we get stuck in that kind of pattern. So mindfulness practices give us insight into those kinds of mechanisms, but they also give us insight into how we construct our sense of self by talking to ourselves all day long. When we practice stepping out of the thought stream a lot, we start to notice that, hey, when the thoughts do arise, most of the thoughts are actually about me and about what I want, what I'm hoping will go well, what I'm hoping won't go well. Right now thinking, am I staying on the theme? Am I remembering what your question is? Is this going to be useful to listeners? This is what's going background even as I'm speaking in this moment. So mindful awareness is noticing that this is occurring and also noticing that all of this chatter basically about ourselves is, as Descartes pointed out years ago, you know, I think, therefore I am. Our sense of me is constructed out of all of this talk, and it's constructed out of the way in which we build what we might call a narrative self, where I say, oh, I'm Ron, I'm a father, I'm a psychologist, I treat chronic pain disorders, I'm participating in a podcast, as opposed to a moment-to-moment experiential self, which is simply noticing my heart rate's a little bit elevated because I'm doing public speaking, noticing that it's a little warm in the room now because it happens to be summertime in New England, feeling my feet on the ground, this kind of thing. There are many, many elements to this. There's the developing metacognitive awareness. There's the noticing what we resist persists. There's this seeing how we're constructing the sense of self. And the more clearly we see this, the main advantage to this is all of the self-esteem preoccupations we have. How am I doing? What do people think about me? Am I successful or not? Am I loved? Am I popular? Am I pretty? Am I ugly? And the All that stuff which preoccupies us and fills a lot of our emotional landscape, that stuff starts to loosen up. And there's another component to it, which I think we'll drill into when we talk about chronic pain, which is simply practicing being with discomfort moment to moment on a sensory level, whether that's an itch or an ache or a feeling of hunger or the feeling of sadness in the heart or the feeling of fear in the chest. Being with these sensations as moment-to-moment sensations and learning that by doing that and by not fighting them, they arise and pass. This greatly increases both our affect tolerance, our ability to be with emotions, including difficult emotions, as well as our capacity to be with physical pain. And when we dig into the physical pain side of this, what I'm going to propose is that mindfulness practices aren't about reducing physical pain, not as a first not as a first order intervention. They're about increasing our tolerance for physical pain so that we can break the recursive loops that maintain most physical pain syndromes. And once we've broken the loop by no longer getting caught in resistance, then the syndrome has a way of resolving on its own.
Mm. Lots of great stuff there in that stream, as you mentioned, thought stream. And I want to come back to that thought stream. And I want to talk about both the cognitive affective aspects of pain, as well as the more physical pain aspects of chronic pain, if you will. But first tell me, how did you segue kind of from the more mindfulness psychotherapy into helping people with chronic pain? I did it by getting caught in one of these loops myself. I was a patient and approximately 30 years ago, I spent four and a half months flat on my back as a herniated disc, with a herniated disc diagnosis. And in those days, 30 years ago, the prevailing opinion on the part of orthopedists and, and neurosurgeons was, if you have a bulging or herniated disc, you need to remain horizontal as much as possible, hope the disc will heal, and wait three, four months. If it doesn't have surgery, which had very iffy statistics recommending still it. do. <laughs> I still do. Um, or maybe you'll get lucky and it'll heal. And I was following their advice because I was quite frightened of this. Day after day, week after week, totally wasn't getting better. So I thought there must be a more active approach. So I went to see a sports medicine doc and he took one look at my CAT scan. This was before we were using MRIs clinically. There was such an era for younger yeah. folks. And he said, if you don't stay off your feet, you're going to be begging me for surgery in six months. So I stayed off my feet. And I just... I.e. bad medical advice. <laughs> right, right. But very much the prevailing advice at the time. I wasn't getting better. At a certain point, I thought, I'm a psychologist. I've got a pretty sedentary profession. And I began a bizarre parody of the classical psychoanalytic scene. I actually had folks construct like a platform bed in my clinic office and in my private practice office. And what I would do is I would be lying down while my patients are sitting up wondering about my pathology and my prognosis. Oh, my. Oh, wow. And this went on for months. And finally, a guy at work, a fellow named John, who happened to be a social worker, said, you got to talk to Linda. And Linda was another social worker I knew. She ran a residential treatment facility for kids. And I thought, well, Linda's very nice. She's a good clinician. She runs a great program. But what's she going to know about chronic back pain that orthopedists and neurosurgeons at Harvard Medical School don't know? He kept pushing me. So I called up Linda. I say, hi, Linda. She said, oh, hi, Ron. I heard you had a back problem. I said, yeah. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm lying down. It's all I ever do. I was a real peach at the time. And she said, <laughs> why don't you get up and buy groceries? Your wife will really appreciate it. And I thought, what? You know, I'm completely unable to move. I thought, you know, this is some kind of feminist cabal. I mean, I'm a postmodern guy. <laughs> I go to the supermarket, but it's like, no, I can't do anything. How could I possibly buy groceries? She said, just do it. Just do it. Just go back to your life. And I had at that point had an appointment scheduled with a well-reputed surgeon because I hadn't gotten better and it was months into this. And I thought, you know, just before I go for the surgical consult, I'm going to do what Linda suggested. Linda's rationale for this was saying, this is essentially a psychophysiological disorder. These disorders are create, often created and certainly very often perpetuated by, in essence, our fear of the disorder and the behavioral adjustments we make in response to the disorder. And if we just go back to our lives, the chances of recovery are increased. So I thought, all right, I'll at least try walking. And at that point in my life, I could walk about a city block and I'd get serious sciatic pain shooting down my leg. So I thought, I'm going to push it a bit. And I walked my city block right on cue, got the sciatic pain down my leg. I thought, all right, courage, Ron. Just try it. Linda seemed convinced. She apparently got out of one of these disorders. I walked another city block. And then to my utter surprise, in addition to the pain shooting down one leg, I developed pain shooting down the other leg. And I thought, well, that was great advice. But actually it was, because according to the CAT scan report, 
The disc was herniated laterally, as they often are. And I was supposed to have pain down one leg, but I wasn't supposed to have pain down the other leg. And the reason I knew this was I read the radiology report pretty much every night before bed. I was obsessed and terrified with this disorder. So if I'm having pain down the other leg, what's this mean? Well, my first hypothesis is now I've shattered my spine entirely and it's all over. Mm-hmm. And my second thought was, could Linda be right? Could it be that the pain is being caused by some mechanism other than the herniation? And if I were to understand that, might I get out of this? And I thought, all right, go for broke. For the next couple of weeks before you see the surgeon, just treat it like a psychophysiological disorder. Treat it as though your fear of this and your behavioral adjustments and your psychological reactivity to the pain is what's perpetuating it and see what happens. And two weeks later, I was done. I was sitting up in my chair seeing patients. I was starting to do yoga again. I was exercising. It was like, oh my God, this was all a bad misunderstanding. How could that be? A year later, I'm still fine. I started communicating with people who had been writing about this. It was a very small group of people 30 years ago who were talking about this. Started connecting with physicians in the Boston area who were not so much taking the psychophysiological angle, but they were doing aggressive rehabilitation to get people back into their lives. And together, we started developing programs based on this. Now, mind you, in this entire miraculous story of recovery, I didn't mention mindfulness. And I've been doing mindfulness practice since I was 17. Well, frankly, when I was in this disorder, I felt so depressed and so frustrated and so frightened that, yeah, I had practiced a little bit, but I was like, to heck with my mind, I've got to cure my body. But once I got over this thing, and once I understood the mechanism of it, at least in my case, I started realizing, gosh, the principles and practices that come from mindfulness traditions would have been extremely useful had I had them in the right cognitive context, had I understood the disorder differently and saw that it was my reactivity to my fear that was the engine driving this, because I could have used mindfulness practices to see my fear more clearly, to tolerate the pain more readily, and to move toward re-engagement in a full life. So that's how I got into treating this, and that was 30-odd years ago, and I've been seeing patients ever since. It's a beautiful story, Ron. I know it's not beautiful to be in pain. <laughs> it's but beautiful it's a to get out of it. Yeah, it's nice to be out of it. That's true. Your colleague, Linda, you mentioned, right? It's a really beautiful story because what Linda did for you in the world of pain, there's not only one thing cognitive that usually helps people with pain, but she helped you with one reconciling that your scan has really has little to do with the pain you're experiencing. I mean, now the pain switched sides, it moved around. It was unpredictable. It was just purely of a musculoskeletal origin. Pain is not unpredictable like that. She helped point you toward things that are meaningful to you and valuable, like your relationship with your wife and doing activities that support your, whatever it was, your marriage or your relationship. Just having you do activity is a good way to alleviate pain. And then the, probably the biggest thing you mentioned, and I want to talk to this in the context of mindfulness, is fear. And fear avoidance specifically. Now, there's a lot of research around fear avoidance of pain. But just talk to me about avoidance in general, as far as human beings and how mindfulness can help alleviate some of that. My pal, John Briere, who's a a trauma researcher and a clinician at the University of Southern California, he likes to say, the only thing you need to avoid in life is avoidance. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) That's so simple, too. (laughs) It's really simple. And... It's true, because avoidance is this posture. Another colleague of mine, a fellow named Judd Brewer, who's really doing wonderful research on the neurobiology of of mindfulness and its relationship to addictions at Brown uh, these days, 
Jed boils it down to something very simple. Are you in a posture of constriction or are you in a posture of openness? And yeah. every time we move into avoidance, we move into this posture of constriction. And if we look at the emotions that are most problematic to us, and even you might join me in this and, and our listeners or viewers, take a moment just to pantomime fear. And fear is a quintessential avoidant reaction, like, I got to get out of here, right? So just do it. Pantomime it like you were really scared for a moment in your body. Excellent. And then if you were to do anger, which is another kind of avoidance of sorts, because it's about getting rid of the bad other, the bad threat, right? So if we pantomime anger, what do we get? And what's happening to our musculature in both of those conditions? Everything is tensing and constricting. Right. That what we call psychological constriction is the same thing as musculoskeletal or muscular constriction. And it is what occurs when we're angry and when we're frightened, when we're basically saying no to an experience in some way. We call it the fight and flight response, right? We're either running or repelling, but they're both highly avoidant states. And the opposite of avoidance is allowing, being with, accepting, feeling. And in that state, we don't have the same levels of muscular tension. And we have an additional super important asset, which is we don't get stuck. Mm -hmm. Emotional states and pain states get stuck when we fight them. When we don't fight them, they arise and they pass like all other phenomena. One of the insights that comes from mindfulness practice is impermanence, noticing that all phenomena are in constant flux. The Buddha pointed this out some 2,500 years ago. It but you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a saint to get it today. Just notice, does any experience stay the same? Do any phenomena stay the same? No. The closest thing to things staying the same that we can get is getting stuck in one of these avoidance cycles. Mm -hmm. And the way this plays out quite simply, the most skeletal outline in terms of uh, chronic pain disorders, let's take back pain that I was in, what was happening to me was I was so terrified of this pain that I was one, I was avoiding activity, which would have allowed me to use my musculature normally. But even more, I was so tight. I was so scared. And I was just constricting, trying desperately to get this to stop. And of course, as soon as I'm frightened, well, that's going to tense muscles. As soon as muscles become tense, there's going to be pain. Tense muscles simply hurt after a while. We know this when these muscles tighten up. We know it if we've ever had a Charlie horse in our calf. The only difference is when it's these muscles or our calf, we typically think it's harmless, it's okay, it's just tension. But when it's our back and we live in a society that has an epidemic of chronic back problems, we think, oh my God, it's something serious. But I can include a little tangent. My mom, when I was 13, spent practically a year on her back. I remember her using a bedpan. And as a 13-year-old boy, your mom with a bedpan is not exactly an image that's easy to reconcile. And when I got my sciatic pain, and her symptom was sciatica. So when I got my sciatic pain, I interpreted it with a level of fear that was probably greater than the average bear would have had because I had the, this memory. Others of us have other associations to back pain from people we've seen who have been, who've had their lives derailed by this. So then when we have the sensation of pain, it brings up all sorts of thoughts about our structural damage and how badly injured we are and how in danger we are because this can derail life. Well, those thoughts lead to more of the fear, leads to more of the tension, and you could easily see how this becomes a perpetual loop that we get caught in, 
And then it's exacerbated because we lose strength, endurance, and flexibility because usually we stop using our body normally. So our muscles really are more vulnerable, even though they may have not been when we first got into the cycle. So if we can use mindfulness practice to simply observe the fear and observe these frightened thoughts and have an increased tolerance for the pain sensations without being reactive to it and to approach all of this with an attitude of basically loving acceptance. It's not easy, but that's what we try to cultivate. You could see how that would interrupt the cycle quite nicely. Mm, Wonderfully said. Your colleague, Linda, also said something, or what she did for you, with regard to ACT, with regard to chronic pain, ACT talks about rulemaking. And the rule you had in your mind at that point was, if I rest, then my pain will go away, then I can get back to my life. Versus what Linda, Linda helped you with, probably in, it sounds like one maybe quick phone conversation, was once you return to back to life, once you get moving again, get back to life, then your pain will start to subside. How do you kind of reconcile that through the lens of you know, a mindfulness contemplative approach? Well, let me talk about it in that context, but let me talk about it in another context first, because you're, you're raising a really, really interesting and important point. As I've encountered them, the majority of pain treatment programs, at least in the United States, have as their metric and their goal, reduction of the sensation of pain. And to my mind, that's problematic because of precisely the mechanism that you just outlined. That, and Linda's approach was different. Linda's approach was, if you can re-engage fully in your life, you will be less afraid of your pain. You will not be fearful of disability. It will, you will be less inclined to get into one of these fear, pain, avoidant loops, and that will walk you out of it. So where you begin is critically important. And frankly, some of the mindfulness, quite a few research studies on the use of mindfulness to work with chronic pain, and they show what I would consider modest effectiveness. They work. They're helpful. They're helpful about at the same level that CBT of various sorts is. Most of the psychosocial interventions seem to be kind of on par with one another. What has distressed me as a clinician working in this field for many, many years is they are very rarely paired with aggressive rehabilitation. They're very rarely paired with something that says, no, let's get you back into your life. And once you're able to see that you can have a full life, even though the pain is there, you will be less frightened of the pain, you will have less impulse to restrict, and the thing will resolve by itself, which is the course that I've seen the vast majority of my patients follow. So the role of mindfulness in this then is to make it so that we're less frightened of the pain when it arises. It's best paired with a rehabilitation program. And then let's say I start walking again, I haven't been walking because I've been afraid it's going to hurt my back or I start lifting things, or a woman who I worked with just saw just yesterday, I start emptying the dishwasher myself instead of having my husband do it because I'm ready to face my fears and get back into life. When the twinge comes, when the spasm comes, when the fearful thought of, oh my God, what if I become incapacitated and can't work or can't lift my child? When those thoughts come, we use mindfulness practice to work with that. We simply feel the sensations of the muscles tightening. We simply notice the catastrophic thoughts arising and passing. And we use the, our mindfulness practice to allow us to tolerate the difficult aspects of resuming a normal and full life. So the, the mindfulness practice actually supports that. And then as we get into our life more normally with less fear and constriction, these disorders tend to take care of themselves. Mm. I'm going to flip hats for a minute. I'm going to put on my kind of strong clinician hat for a second. So there's a couple of things that are coming to mind as you're talking that I'm kind of noticing come up for me. 
One is in the, in the realm of physical therapy, as well as some pain psychology, pain education approaches that are really, that help people reconceptualize what pain is. So instead of them thinking that it's a problem in their body, that they're not damaged, that it's a problem in their nervous system. And they're wonderful. There's great evidence on it, like very similar to CBT, minimal to moderate effects. When you combine it with other physical rehabilitation, then you see moderate to larger effects. But that approach does leave you at times grappling with changing someone's thoughts or beliefs. So just hold on to that for a minute. Similar to the fact that traditional CBT, you would take someone's thoughts in essence and again, help reframe them or restructure them. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know you've studied both, obviously you're a trained psychologist. How does that, how does that or does that not fit in with mindfulness? Because as a psychologist who's listening to this or another mental health professional may say, I love mindfulness. I recommend mindfulness all the time for my clients, but I have a hard time fitting it into my CBT practice, or I have a hard time fitting it into my DBT practice, let's say. What are your responses to those types of questions? Well, as I understand it, mindfulness, in fact, it's actually the experience of mindfulness practice on the part of many practitioners that has helped open up what is often called the third wave in behavior therapy. You know, the movement from, okay, straight behavioral interventions, whether through classical conditioning paradigms or changing reinforcement contingencies in an operant paradigm, what we call behavior modification broadly, then, hey, people think in ways that rats probably don't, let's address cognitions. And we have the whole realm of CBT, which is, as you put quite clearly, is about basically changing maladaptive, irrational thoughts into adaptive, rational ones. And then there's this third wave of which ACT is a significant component, which is really about, can we see thought as thought? Can we notice as I understand it, and I've run this by several researchers in the field of cognitive science, non-clinicians, and as I read the cognitive science literature, there's basically two big findings that have come out over the last 15 years. The first is we are wholly and hopelessly irrational in our thinking. Our thinking is driven by our feelings. All we need to do is glance at the political arena to see this. And whatever side of the divide any of us might be on, think of the way you view the people on the other side of the divide. Notice the way all of their thoughts are shaped by their feelings, right? You can see it quite clearly when looking at the other people, which ties into the second major finding in cognitive science, which is we all believe ourselves to be rational actors. We don't believe that our feelings are influenced by our emotions, even though all the data says that they are. So putting these together, thought becomes extremely unreliable, particularly in contexts that are emotionally charged. And when we're in pain, it is highly emotionally charged. So our belief that we're damaged, our belief about what's going to happen becomes quite, quite powerful. There are different ways to work with that. You could work with it with traditional CBT and argue against the premise that you're damaged. And I think that actually plays a role in treatment, even though I'm not big at arguing with patients in general in my life. I will argue with folks about there, I, I will point out the fallacies in some of their logic about their pain disorders. I've had people literally tell me their back went out. And when I asked them for what's their model, what's their understanding of what happened? It was a week ago, I drove over a pothole in my large person actually had like a Mercury, you know, like one of these boat, <laughs> like old American cars. You drove over a pothole a week ago in your Mercury, and that's what has caused it. So I must avoid potholes. So I'll like actually do his traditional CBT take on that to sure. 
examine how plausible is that really. But more often, from a mindfulness-oriented perspective, I think the task is to just notice the connection between affect and thinking and notice the way this changes. We see this quite clearly in other disorders like depression. If you talk to somebody who's not always deeply sunk in depression but struggles with it, and you ask them, how do they view the world when they're feeling depressed? And they'll tell you it's hopeless, it's negative, all this. And you say, and how did you view it a couple of weeks ago when you weren't so depressed? Oh, well, I was just fooling myself back then. My more optimistic vision was actually diluted back then, but now I see reality. Or you flip that and you talk to somebody who's come out of depression and they'll say, oh yeah, back then when I was depressed, that was my depression talking. That's why I saw it so negatively. Now I see things more clearly. Helping people to see that the way we construct our universe is so deeply dependent on our emotional state at the time, that becomes very powerful for loosening this up. So there's a mindfulness-oriented approach, which is a more contextual approach, which is much more about developing metacognitive awareness. And there is a role for sometimes challenging people's belief systems, particularly when they have belief systems that lead to, I mustn't lift, I mustn't bend, I mustn't participate in my life, because listening to those beliefs is so such a powerful factor in maintaining the disorder that it's worth challenging them directly. I love the way you folded all that together because so often it's easy for people to kind of pick a camp. I'm in the CBD camp. I'm in the mindfulness camp. I'm in the ACT camp. But when you're able to fold and very few practitioners can actually do what you just did and kind of hurdle all different aspects and know when to apply it. So I really appreciate that. I think it shows obviously your skill and years of expertise because some of these things can be really difficult to start to implement with people if you're just holding on to that one approach, basically. Wilhelm Reich, who was in, in a sense, the original mind-body therapist, you know, he's Freud's follower who spoke about character disorder, character armor, and that basically by everything from bioenergetics to Rolfing, everything came out of Reich's work. And he arguably got into some pretty crazy territory at the end with his orgone box. But before kind of going off the deep end in that way, he said, and I thought this was, I thought it was brilliant. We don't see it. I've never come across a psychological model that wasn't true to some degree and wasn't useful to some degree in giving us some explanatory value. And that's my sense. We're all looking at this amazingly multivariate, complex being of being a human being. And there's so many different ways to story this, all of which are somewhat useful and all of which give us a, a slightly different perspective. Well said. There are a myriad of different ways to help people with their mind and of course their body as well, because they're highly interconnected. I think mindfulness is really important for practitioners who treat pain as well as other chronic health conditions. How can a practitioner who trains in mindfulness improve themselves as a practitioner and in turn help their outcomes with their patients? Well, mindfulness practice is one of those things which is, which you kind of got to, I sometimes joke with audiences, I say, you know, what do the following three things have in common? Swimming, making love, and eating a gourmet meal. What would you say? Swimming, making love, and eating. They're all pleasurable? <laughs> it probably depends on with whom you're making love. <laughs> Potentially. Anything else come to mind? Um, not particularly, no. Okay, well, my thought for my peculiar mind is those are three things in which doing them is very different from talking about them. And mindfulness practice is very much in that camp. There are people who say, well, I want to teach my patients mindfulness practice. And it's a little bit like saying, I want to be a cello teacher. Well, do you play the cello? No, no, I don't. Have you played the cello? No, no, I never have. But I want to teach it. It's very hard to do it well. 
I mean, yes, you can read the scripts, and the, but as soon as people start having interesting and challenging experiences, which means very early on in the process of teaching this, you have to have personally experienced a lot of those challenges yourself, struggled with them some, found ways through some of them. You have to have lived it to teach it. So the first place to begin, as I see it, is take up the practices. Try this yourself. These are not these practices were not originally designed to treat particular disorders that show up in the DSM. They were designed to treat the fact that we evolved brains and minds. They didn't talk about in terms of brains 2,500 years ago. They talked in terms of minds. But we evolved minds that inherently bring a tremendous amount of psychological distress. Our minds are constantly complaining. They're constantly wanting things to be other than as they are. They're constantly self-preoccupied with, how am I doing? Mine's doing it right now, and I've been doing this stuff for years. <laughs> this is, they have these propensities that lead to psychological suffering. These practices are designed to help illuminate those and give us pathways through. So they're of use to us, even if we're not treating patients, but they're particularly of use to us as clinicians if we want to share these practices with, with folks. So that's where it begins. The second thing, which is really quite important, is to understand that Anything which is powerful enough to be useful is powerful enough to make trouble. Uh, fire being the most you know, commonly used example of this principle. It's great when it's contained in an internal combustion engine or in a stove, not so good when it gets out into the living room. And what we know from mindfulness practices is that they're like this. They are quite powerful change agents. They can really shift how we understand ourselves. They can really soften the repression barrier and give us access to all sorts of emotions that we're we otherwise weren't in contact with and started that because that's another important function of them vis-a-vis -vis chronic pain we can come back to. And they help us to be present. They help us to be more related, all sorts of positive things. But what we're finding, and I credit my friend and colleague, Willoughby Britton at Brown University, who's done a 10-year study on the adverse effects of mindfulness practices. And she's a serious mindfulness student. She's not a hostile person who thinks what we really should be doing is all watching television all the time. But she's been cataloging the things that go wrong and people get stuck in states of dissociation. They encounter states of high anxiety. They encounter all sorts of difficulties. So the second thing is to be aware of for whom these practices are most suited when and to have something of a differentiated clinical understanding of when they would be useful and when they would not be useful so that we don't inadvertently help people connect with thoughts, feelings, experiences that they're really not equipped to work with right now and basically re-traumatize people and, and overwhelm them. So the, so the two first orders of business are do the practice ourselves and learn about indications and contraindications, and then we move into their various applications. Mm. We can't let, I don't know if you have another question. Or if we, so you had a star there. You want to get to that star? Yeah, yeah let me just mention that. Because to step back and look at approach to chronic pain, and we packaged this into something we called the BackSense program and wrote a book 20 years ago now on this. At that time, the research it was based on was like mm, a little bit novel. It wasn't the mainstream. Now it's all become quite mainstream. It's really been quite heartening to see this. But we basically had four steps to this. And the first was the obvious one. You want to rule out dangerous, treatable medical conditions. Some people have back pain because they've got a kidney infection. Some people have cancer of the spine. I mean, we don't want to start treating those things like psychophysiological disorders. We want to really rule out the dangerous stuff. Second part is the cognitive restructuring that you've spoken of. How can we come to understand this differently? And 
if I can actually answer one of your earlier questions a little bit more thoroughly, mindfulness practices also help with cognitive restructuring because as we develop metacognitive awareness and see thoughts arising and passing, we become less attached to each individual thought. So we become a little bit more flexible and a little bit better able to entertain new thoughts, novel ways of looking at situations to think outside the box. And the more we practice mindfulness, the better for them. The third component that I haven't addressed so far is sometimes people will get back into their lives. They actually will develop the courage to start moving normally and their pain persists. One hypothesis is, okay, there is a structural issue going on that needs to be addressed or perhaps can't be addressed and the person has to live with it. But another hypothesis, which very often seems to be operative in my clinical experience, is there's some emotional state, some emotions that are difficult to integrate, that are difficult to allow into awareness. And what's happening is the person is chronically tensing up, not is chronically in a fight or flight state, not fearing the tigers out there, or even perhaps at this point, fearing their pain so much because they've worked this through, but they're afraid of the sadness, or they're afraid of the anger, or they're afraid of some sexual feeling, which in their particular cultural or family context is unacceptable. I mean, for me, having grown up as a guy who's I learned not to cry publicly pretty early on by seeing what happened to other guys who did that. And I learned not to cry at all shortly after that. So when I'm generally anxious and stressed and tight, if I'm a bit mindful and I turn inward and I ask myself the question, what feeling might be under this? There's almost always a wave of sadness. There's almost always some unintegrated sense of loss or vulnerability or tenderness. And if I can connect with that, very often the whole fight or flight stress response, let's go. I'll share one other story. I know I'm I'm rolling a little bit, but I had an incident of chronic back pain on a family vacation in Turkey. And it was our last vacation. I have twin daughters before they were going to go off to college and point in time in our lives in the sense that we were going to face the empty nest. And, you know, I love my kids and what's that going to be like? And will I miss them? So I'm climbing out of the Bosporus in Turkey, and suddenly my back goes out, and it's horrible. It's one of these can't-tie-my-shoelaces back episodes, and I've been doing this work for quite a long time, and I remember, I forget the guy's name, but the orthopedist who used to edit Spine, who was at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and his wife's back had gone out, same way, like, couldn't tie your shoelace, and she said, honey, what should I do? He said, you should go for a run. She said, are you nuts? Can't go for a run. I can't tie my shoelace. Just go for a run. I was moved by that. This is along the same lines we've been talking. And I thought, okay, I'm in Turkey. I can't tie my shoelace, but I jog for exercise. I'm going for a run. I went for a run, ow, ow, but I did it. And I just kept doing it, flew back home, kept active. It's about a week later. It's hanging on for a long time. I'm thinking, this is weird because I am fully back to activity, but it's still hanging on. I didn't really think there was something structural. I just climbed over some rocks in the Bosporus. I'm in the basement. I'm doing laundry, further example of living your life normally despite this thing. And suddenly this wave of sadness comes up about my kids leaving home. Like, oh my God, they've grown up. I can't believe it. Everything really does change. I'm going to miss them so much. Like this powerful wave of sadness. And there was a release associated with that wave of sadness. And by that evening, it was gone. It was gone. And I thought, oh, what an important lesson here. What an important lesson having learned not to cry in junior high, carrying that through as a life character posture. And here, sometimes you can get over the fear, you can get over the fear of movement, get over all that, and you have to address these other emotional things. And there are many, many pathways to doing that. Mindfulness practice isn't the only one, but mindfulness practice is one way 
to tune in, notice what emotions are happening, kind of felt sense in the body, and open to them. And that, too, becomes a very important component of the, this treatment process. Yeah. Well said. When I first started doing loving kindness practices, I was amazed at, uh, I'll, I'll say this publicly, how much anger had, would, would come up in these practices when I, I thought I would be sitting down and like feeling good and wishing everyone lovingness and kindness. And I was like, why is there anger and frustration and rage and all these other like things that are in there that I didn't know were in there? But when you sit with yourself for a certain period of time and you're guided through those practices, other things come up and you start to see the different colors of those rainbows that you hope are going to be, as I mentioned, all loving. And they're not always like that. But then once you kind of get beyond that or you just learn to be with that and notice it, it does get better and things do start to change from that. Right. And sometimes these heart-centered practices are very powerful this way. Um, a friend of mine, uh, a good friend that we've done a lot of writing and work together, uh, Chris Germer, who's with Chris and Neff, developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. He coined this term backdraft. He, he didn't coin it. He borrowed it yeah. from firefighters who, when they enter a room, they feel the door first. Before opening, before entering the room, they feel the door to see if it's hot because if it's hot and there's smoldering embers in there and you em open the door, the oxygen comes in and whoosh you have this conflagration, right? And that's exactly how we operate. Like you, know, you see the little kid who skinned his or her knee frozen on the ground till a loving adult comes up and gives them a hug. And that's like, wah, it's right. all out. And we're all that way. So when we do these loving kindness practices, whether it be wah or uh, or ah or whatever yeah. it might be that we've locked away, it comes to the fore. And I'd argue that, it, that that is extremely important for treating these chronic pain disorders because that's what allows us not to chronically hold our muscles always in this state of contraction because we're trying to block out the tigers within. Yeah. When people tell me, oh, I love loving kindness practice. I do it all the time. I just feel great 100% of the time. I'm like, something's wrong. So you're not doing it right or you're not approaching it with the what you think it should be doing is not actually kind of working in that sense. So you, have the, you mentioned a book, Back Sense which of course is a book that talks about mindfulness from a, a chronic pain perspective with regard to back pain. You also have a course coming up with Praxis in September. If people want to check that out, you can go to www.praxiscet.net. That's www.praxiscet.net. And the course is called Clinical Applications of Mindfulness and Compassion, which fits perfectly with a lot of things we've talked about today. Can you tell us what the aim of that course is, what practitioners can learn from that? The aim of that course is really to take this integration of mindfulness practices to talk about what I think is the growth edge of this. Now that, I mean, when we first wrote back in, what was it, 2005, we wrote Mindfulness and Psychotherapy. It was one of the early texts about integrating mindfulness practices into psychotherapy, and it was all quite novel back then. But now, some nearly 15 years later, a lot of clinicians are familiar with this. But there are some implications of these practices that I've alluded to in our talk here that have tremendous therapeutic potential, like the way in which they can get us to reconsider our whole sense of self and how, what is all the self-preoccupation about and how do I construct it and how do I basically, to put it in an ACT framework, limit my psychological flexibility by believing that I am this self and not that self when in many ways we are made up of a constantly changing kaleidoscope of selves, if you will, and how mindfulness practice can help illuminate that. The course also delves in in some depth to how do you tailor these practices to meet the different needs of different clients or patients? Because 
These are not one-size-fits-all practices. We've already mentioned, too, in the course of our discussion, you've emphasized the loving-kindness practices. And when I was talking more about mindfulness as awareness of present experience with acceptance, more about the awareness or the wisdom practices. But these practices, in many of the traditions from which they derive, are designed to create wisdom, clear seeing, clear cognition, if you will, and compassion, an open, vulnerable, quivering, loving heart, right? how to use these practices to develop both for different people who may be stuck in different ways, as well as people from different cultural backgrounds and the like. And the course delves in a lot to what are the basic mechanisms of action? We've touched here on a few of the mechanisms of action vis-a-vis chronic pain, but there are similar mechanisms of action for anxiety, for depression, for, for relational difficulties and the like. So the course tries to take what's developed over many years and talk about what at least I see as some of the growth edges to the field. Mm. Excellent, Ron. I, I really have enjoyed talking to you today. I could probably go on for a long time. We've been going for almost an hour now, but I want everyone just to know that you can find that course at praxiscet.net. Um, you can also learn all about Ron by going to his website directly, which is mindfulness-solution.com. That's mindfulness-solution.com. Ron, it's been great having you on the podcast let us know what you're up to in the future because we'd love to have you back on to talk about mindfulness and chronic pain, all the different things you have to, to talk about. So it's been a pleasure working with you today. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for your really thoughtful questions. It's so clear that you've been doing this work yourself by the way in which you, um, you ask your questions and perspectives you have. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And of course, make sure to share this podcast out with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or drop it into a Facebook group where you know there are people who are interested in mindfulness and CBT and pain education and chronic pain, they'll definitely get something from this podcast. And of course, all of Ron's great resources. I'm Dr. Joe Tadden. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tadda. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrative pain science institute.com sign up to receive weekly updates leave a review on itunes and share this episode with your friends